Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Bengalis in New York show. My name is Arik and uh, we were repping it for, you know, the Bronx, Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, and all over the world. So welcome and enjoy. So you listen to other podcasts too? Yes, I love podcasts. What other podcasts do you listen to? Um, How I Built This by NPR, uh, Startup, okay. Gimlet Media, and also The Pitch by Gimlet Media. Okay, okay. Yeah. I like. I really like Guy. Do you listen to Guy's other podcast, The TED Radio Hour? I have not yet, but I, I really want to. It's really good. Yeah. I mean, I lo- you love TED Talks. I'm sure you've seen yeah. TED Talks, and I love TED Talks. And it's basically the audio version of TED Talks. But one thing I like is that they take TED Talks related to... Multiple TED Talks related to one topic and they put it together. Mm-hmm. So it's like you're listening to multiple TED Talks. Yeah, on the same topic. Yeah. That's and, cool. And also, I feel like Guy has this perfect voice for for radio. Yeah, he's right? amazing. Like, amazing. We can yeah. I can totally nerd out about him for an hour now. Really? Yeah, I think he's yeah. great. He's got good tone of voice. He's really empathetic. He's funny. He asks really difficult questions. Yeah. I love it. And Freakonomics is my other favorite. Ah, that's a good one. Freakonomics, good one. and they have another one called uh, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Have you seen that mm-hmm. one? No. You would like it because there's actually a lot of comedians on there, a lot of former improv people on there. Oh, nice. Like, you would know. I, I, I didn't know who they were, and when I Googled them, they were, like, all from, like, Chicago and all these, like, comedy troops and yeah, stuff like that. that's awesome. Because it's how I... Uh, I'm sorry. Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. It, the premise is, like... It's really interesting. It's... There's like there usually there's an audience, and they'll tell a a fact, and there's a live audience. It's live audience. Oh wow! Yeah, and I've been trying. I've been wanting to go to one. So they take a they say a fact, and then the judges and usually the judges are like comedians or actors. A lot of them are improv, and they mm-hmm. say whether it's true, and whether it's believable and then one other thing but then, then they talk about it and they're comedians and they make it really, really funny yeah. so I, I find that really interesting that's awesome so people don't know so Roman and I used to work together yep and the corporate grind and now you're the CEO of two startups tell us about that sure they're, they're two totally different first of all thank you for having me I really appreciate it um, I'm excited to talk about the two very very different things that I that I'm doing with my time so one thing that I do that I actually started where we, when we were working together is on the improv side. So you probably know I've been doing improv for almost 10 years. Um, I started in law school just because I wanted to do something that was fun and take some stress out and you know let me laugh for a couple hours each week. And I just fell in love with it. And I, the first class I ever took... Uh, because I was in law school, I thought to myself, wow, this is something that law school should be teaching. In the back of my head, I was like, I'm going to teach this one day. I don't know how, I don't know where, but I just, I know I'm going to teach it one day. Um, kept doing, kept doing uh, improv classes throughout law school, graduated law school, moved down to D.C. to practice as an attorney, found another improv studio there. Um, it's called D.C. Improv. And took a class there, but then I eventually found myself back in New York, which was awesome because New York is like one of the meccas for of of, um, of improv. And uh, signed up once again, and like a couple of years in was when when we were at DTCC, they did their you know we had our our TEDx, which you were part of as well, yes, and you was. spoke. Um, so we were both co speakers, 
And uh, I pitched this idea of talking about improv in the workplace, and they loved it. And so I had the opportunity to talk about it on, a, you know, in a TEDx environment. And, you know, I think the, the presentation went well, but ultimately afterwards, all these managers of various teams came up to me and they were like, Roman, this sounds so great. I need this for my team. Can you come do a, you know, an improv exercise for, for half an hour with my team? You know, someone else said, can you come and do our offsite or whatever? So all of a sudden I was... Chief improv officer. Chief improv officer at DTCC. I had someone, I'll never forget it, I had someone from our Florida office email me one time uh, because they said, hey, I heard you do improv and so you know, I'm going to be in, in, in New York and I wanted to, with our team, do something. So that was awesome and that was such a great low stress environment for me. It was sort of like intrapreneurship in a way that was really low stakes for the company. I wasn't asking them to build a technology product or anything like that. I was just like, hey, I know how to do this thing. It would benefit employees within the company and it's free for you. Let me let me just, if it's okay with you, let me you know talk to some managers. And I mean, essentially any team that said, okay, you know, it was good to go. Um, my team was really nice enough for, to let me go 30 minutes here and 30 minutes there and essentially leave work. And I think partly it was because my department was like central to the entire organization. We sort of touched technology, we touched finance, we touched um, operations and stuff. So it was really good for me to network with mm. other teams. It just sort of worked out that yeah. way. So all of a sudden I'm doing improv with this team, improv with that team. Um, and I started to think like, maybe I could do this outside. So long story short, um, I started teaching improv classes at startups basically I started pitching my friends saying hey I've done this at my company let me come in and do yours I didn't have a website didn't have, I still don't have a website actually but I have an Instagram page which I use basically as my website um, but then at the same time I was texting with a friend of mine and this is getting to the first company that I run I was texting with a friend of mine who I went to law school with and she is still practicing law, but she in her spare time is a big cocktail nerd. So she loves craft cocktails. You know, your sort of uh, Manhattans, your old fashions, things like that. Uh, and she started sort of tinkering with them at home and learned how to make her own syrups and created her own sort of cocktail uh, resume. Um, and one day we were texting and she's like, hey, can you come over? I'm going to have a party at my house. Maybe... I mean, I was invited anyway, I guess, just as a friend. But she was like, hey, can you do a, an improv game and just kind of warm everybody up? And I said, sure. And we were texting, and instead of – and this sort of story is on our website. Instead of improvise, she said, hey, can you improvise something? We had a tech – we had a, a typo, and instead of the S, I wrote a C, and it was improvise. I love it. And so we were – and then I feel like it was just this thing of like, hmm, you know, that's interesting. Ice – cocktails you do cocktails i do improv why don't we join forces and like turn this into a thing so i started thinking about it and brainstorming it um it's really interesting because usually you have an idea you know you hear all these stories about you have an idea how'd you come up with the name right this was totally the idea coming from the name oh wow uh, which i thought was just really fun That's really interesting. um yeah and so we essentially in, in in startup fashion we beta tested with our friends um, we called our friends and said hey we have all this cocktail equipment. We have this idea. We want to join. We want to combine improv games and craft cocktail instructions or a craft cocktail class. You know, the type of thing where you go somewhere and they say, take two ounces of this and an ounce of that and add this thing and shake it up and you have your cocktail. 
Um, so we, we combined those two and our friends were like, of course, I would love to drink for free and have fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we did this a handful of times with a lot of our close friends. We had a survey that we sent out. We got feedback. We asked people, well, how much would you pay for this? Uh, we had an idea of what we wanted. You know, people gave us wildly different answers, but we just wanted to gauge sort of the our our, our audience. Um, yeah, and then eventually we we launched. So the company's called Improvise. Uh, the website is Improvisenyc.com, and essentially we uh, created a cocktail and improv experience that we bring to companies. So we're, we've now been doing this for over two years, and I think, or maybe it's even been three years. And uh, we've we've gone to like Spotify a bunch of times. Oh, we've wow. gone to VTS. There's a company called VTS that's a New York City based. They're actually just just uh, became a unicorn. They just raised like a really big wow. VC round and were valued at north of a billion dollars. Um, this other company, Media Math, they're they're pretty well known. Wow. Cubic, like all these. Then we worked with the financial services company. We did a 60th birthday party. Uh, this woman in Brooklyn who like had close friends who they've known each other for like 40 years. Any bones broken? No bones broken. No, it's we have it's a it's a very low stakes, low okay. risk. Uh, yeah. And you're doing uh, for people maybe after this will probably be posted after the event. But Roman's also doing an event uh, that Boney is hosting for a uh, uh, person that's running for city council uh, in Queens, Brent O'Leary. So he's going to be doing. Uh, improv there so excited about that what what how would you explain to somebody what improv is that doesn't know yeah sure so a lot of people when they think about improv they think about whose line is it anyway yeah, that's the thing, that's yeah. the famous one and so what that, the reason i wanted to take my first improv class is because i grew up watching whose line i loved it right i Love thought it. it was hilarious but i was always like there's no way this is made up on the spot there's no way you know the famous it's the show where the everything's made up and the points don't matter and, and it's one of those things where you're like, they had to have planted this person in the audience to give them a recommendation that they already had some idea of. Um, and, and I just couldn't believe it. And so I, I took this class with a friend of mine in law school, and I was like, wow, you can really learn this. So improv from the whose lines it anyway perspective is, you know, a comedy show where you get suggestions from an audience about like a character and you make up lines for that funny character. Um, but really improv is just unscripted theater. So it could be a quick two minute funny skit or it could be, I've seen hour long shows that are completely made up. All the characters are made up that there's drama, there's, there's heartbreak, there's death. There's, I mean, it's like these, these people are so talented and they come up with, so they practice, for example, how to create, a scenario. They practice how to create a character on the spot. They practice building a relationship instantaneously without a script. So they practice like the the framework of what it means to put together a show. But truly, improv is unscripted. You come on stage, you ask the audience for a suggestion, and then you and your you know teammates um, just create an entire play. Um, now, people ask, say it's 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 comedy. Really good improv doesn't set out to be funny. So it's not like, hey, I'm, you know, Jimbo and I'm going to be a clown. Very often you'll see an improv show like in, in New York City, for example, Upright Citizens Brigade, <laughs> Magnet Theater, which is where I've done all my classes and all my shows, The Pit. Um, those are like the three biggest here in New York City. If you go see a show there, uh, the themes are very often something that's much more human. Really? That's like, you know, the suggest- a lot of the suggestions would be prompted by a question of like, 
what would you tell yourself 10 years ago? Or what's something that was really difficult for you that happened today? Or something like that. And somebody gives a pretty decent, you know, like human answer. And then they build a show around that. The reason it's funny is because it's made up, the actors screw up inevitably, right? So like, and the way they deal with it is what's funny. So if I'm in a scene with you, and this whole time you've been my uncle, and for some reason I had a brain fart and I forgot, and I'm like, hey, bro, right? Um, you would have to, you know, the audience saw that, right? So now the, the funny thing is how do you deal with it? So now all of a sudden you're not just my uncle. You're my uncle where we have this like, what's up, bro, relationship, right? And then that just kind of is where the comedy um, happens. So in a, in a very massive nutshell, that's kind of what improv is. It's and there's a premise of where, uh, and if. Uh, uh, yes, it, and. Yes, and, yeah. sorry. Talk about that. What does that mean? Yeah, so yes and, and this is something that I think bleeds into the corporate world. For me, this is how I started teaching improv at, at companies, um, is this idea that improv is based on the fact that because it's made up, you can't negate what your scene partner is saying. So, for example, you and I are on stage. We, it's just the two of us. We're going to put on a 30-minute show, and the suggestion is classroom, right? So... We have that's it. That's all we have. We've never practiced this. We have no idea what we're going to say. And I start off, and in my head, I envision you as the teacher, and myself as a student. And I'm like, hey, teach. You know, why did I get that B minus? I thought I did really well. If you were going to yes and me, what you're really yes anding is this whole premise that I've set up. You have to agree that you're the teacher because I've labeled you that way. And because I'm calling you a teacher, that the presumption is I'm a student. So you would say, oh, yeah, Bobby, you know, you did a great job, but you got some of these questions wrong. That's why you got to be minus. So that's how we sort of start the scene off. The opposite of yes and, um, which would be like a no but, for example, or really a, if just negating what I would be saying is if we had that same scene and I said, hey, teach, why did I get this bad grade? And then you'd be like, hey, Bobby, why are you calling me teacher? I'm just your classmate, mm. right? So you're negating the reality I've set up. And from the audience perspective, they're like, what are these two people doing on stage? Mm. Like, this isn't a show. They're just arguing and bickering. Mm. Um, now, this is really important in the corporate context because when you think about a team dynamic, having a yes and point of view means that if, let's say, we're brainstorming or we're talking about how we're going to deal with something happening at work, and I might throw out an idea your responsibility is to quote unquote yes and my idea which means doesn't have to be let's go with it it's just more about let's entertain that idea okay so what do you mean and add right. to it and, and yeah exactly and add to it so that's the yes part is, and then the, the and part is now I gave my idea you said okay that's interesting like expand and I expand a little bit and then maybe you give me a little bit more information you internalize the idea for just a couple of minutes just let's see where it goes because very often you know, you come up with an idea, the very initial piece of it is not going to be something that sounds like it works. But then if you take it a couple of logical steps forward, you know, it might be something that's useful. Mm. Um, so that that's something that resonates a lot with, like, managers of teams where they want their teams to work well together. Mm -hmm. um, very often, especially creative roles, imagine you're a marketing agency and, it, you know, yeah. you have a client that's like, I need you to create an ad for me. And this is what we want it to feel like. I mean, you're literally creating out of thin air. You need your team to be very strongly about the yes and kind of mindset so that when I say, oh, well, what about this? You have to say, yeah, great. Let's go with it. Yeah. So Makes improv sense. teaches that. And when I come in and teach improv workshops, you know, with any kind of, with a team in any industry, really, um, I think 
afterwards they feel more comfortable with each other and because they feel more comfortable with each other and more open themselves uh, the idea is that well the next time they have a meeting and they you know someone says something the reaction isn't like that's a stupid idea yeah. the reaction instead is going to be like okay I, I don't get it or I don't agree with it but let me give you a couple of minutes so that we can explore it a little bit and I think are people usually surprised when they're, they're told oh we're going to be improv and then at the end of the session do they do you think they get like why they're doing 100%, it yeah. 100% the only time people aren't surprised is if somebody in the group has you know maybe in college or high school did a little theater and they, they dabbled wow. And they miss it, but other people are like, "Oh, I'm so nervous," or "I'm not funny," yeah. and I'm. And my answer to them is always, you know, the reality is we wake up every single day without a script, right? Um, yes, we know that we're going to go to work, we're going to see the same five or six people, you know, within our environment. We're going to go home and talk to our friends or family or whatever, um, but you don't know who you're going to run in dur- run into during the day, and even so, you don't even know what you're going to say to the people at work. I mean, literally, you don't have a script. And so we really improvise every day. And so improv is not about being funny. It's about being comfortable with the fact that, like, you're allowed to think on your feet um, and you're allowed to make things up as you go yeah. uh, without the pressure of trying to be, you know, trying to be funny or trying to be something. Yeah, it's also a muscle that if you um, work on, you can utilize in in other meetings, right? Just. Mm-hmm. You get called on in a meeting, mm-hmm. and even if you don't know the answer a hundred percent, just being able to. And if you notice, a lot of really, I had a we had a town hall today at my job, and the CEO, I just felt like he took a slide and just talked about it for ten minutes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes saying the same thing over and over, but then, just, but also just like, I don't want to say embellish, but just keep talking about uh, things uh, in a way that's articulate and you know, at least trying to be substantive. Like I feel like some people are better at that. And I feel like. Something like improv helps you get that. So. Yeah, one of the things it does is it helps you think quickly on your feet. Yeah. Um, sometimes you already, you always, ha- you ha- you might have the answer in the back of your head, but your nerves or something are holding that information back. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you're put on the spot, wouldn't you rather shine in a meeting or something yeah. like that than than be like, uh, I I don't know. The other thing though is improv makes you comfortable comfortable with having the spotlight on you, and more importantly, not having an answer. So in improv, for example, sometimes. You, you're, you're on stage it's your quote unquote turn to talk so let's say you as a scene partner said something to me mm-hmm. and the expectation is that I'm going to respond sometimes on stage you just have you just your brain freezes and you have you're, you don't know what you're going to say um, and so as you go through improv classes you end up becoming comfortable with silence where in a scene on stage in your head you're like crap what am I going to say I don't know what to answer this person but what you learn as an actor, as an improv actor, is okay. That's fine. Take a breath, walk over, you know. Pretend because in real life, sometimes you know. Let's say you're talking to a friend of yours, um, you know. You don't expect them to answer like this. It's okay if they're doing something. They might finish washing their hands, walk around the corner, and say something back to you. In real life, that's fine. And on stage, it's like everyone's staring at you, waiting for you to talk. You become comfortable with silence. So I think in a presentation environment, you can become comfortable with taking a second to think, right, so that you don't feel rushed. Um, and then at the end of the day, if you don't know the answer, being comfortable saying, I don't know, but let me get back to you on that. Yeah. Okay. And I think that's something a lot of like corporate coaches, executive coaches say, own what you know, but more importantly, own what you don't know, because that's going to give you credibility rather than just giving some BS on the spot and then somebody finding out later and saying, man, that guy's just trying to like talk, doesn't really know what he's saying. That's hilarious. So I don't know if people... So Roman's not Bengali, so uh, 
but uh, as he said earlier, Romans, uh, you live in Queens, so exposed to a lot of Bengali people. Yes, and I'm an Im- fellow immigrant. Fellow immigrant. The, How's the tea, uh, by the way? The tea is, oh my gosh, it's so good. And I'm having it with no sugar, which I yeah. hear is uh, pretty legit. I don't know how you can do that. What is I, the name of it again? It's just Bengali cha. Okay. So, oh, okay. Uh, it's just the way we make it. It's like with carnation milk. It's so good. Yeah, I recently... I, I, I feel like I'm talking about this in every episode because I recently <laughs> learned how to make Bengali cha, like the way our parents make it. And uh, yeah, now I make it all the time. I love it. it but yeah. is there like... But you're... So you were born in... Born where? Yeah, so I was born in the Ukraine, uh, okay. former Soviet Union. Um, I came here when I was two and a half, so you know that's why I don't really have a strong accent. Although sometimes if I have a couple of beers in me <laughs> either a russian accent comes out or like a new york accent comes out okay. i can't tell um but yeah i came here when i was young so i kind of i don't have memories unfortunately of where i'm from and i'm sure like you know reading the bony account and you know reading all the stories that people share i think folks who grew up here either are, are like me who came here at a very young age and just purely identify or purely only have memories of of you know their american upbringing or are parents of immigrants and so they obviously were born here but they get their culture from their parents it's this weird thing of like especially if you were born somewhere else and came here when you're young sometimes i wish i had memories mm. you know of where i'm from because i'm kind of neither nor you know neither nor, either or neither nor right yeah. i'm like ne- in, in I'm, I'm neither a total immigrant where i could say like back in the old country i used to stand on bread lines so blah 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 yeah but then again i can't be the president because i wasn't born here yeah you know i'm still i still have i grew up in an immigrant household immigrant mentality right so like what am I? It's really... I've always thought about this. But, uh, oh, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, I feel the same way. But, you know, I, one thing I'll say, though, even... Old, I feel like older people have that mindset, too. People that came here when they're adults. Because my father mm. has that mindset, too, believe it or not. Because what they left behind is not what it what it is. I, mm-hmm. For Bangladesh, anyway. Mm-hmm. Like, what my dad left behind in Bangladesh in 1990 is not the Bangladesh today. So, when he goes back, it's nothing like what he remembers mm. it. Well, Do you still have family back there? I have a ton of family, okay. yeah. I'm going to probably go go back in May. Have you gone back to Ukraine? I've not. Really? So, so, yeah, so that's the difference. I mean, we came here as refugees, um, you know, so we're Jewish, and so Jews who fled the Soviet Union. Basically, communism fell, Soviet Union crumbled, and all the Jews were like, peace out, and left. So there's a huge influx. So all of the, a lot of the Russian Jews in Brighton Beach and sort of in mm. southern Brooklyn here came here in the early late 80s early 90s like i did mm. um many went to israel many went to canada you know so there were a lot literally hundreds of thousands of people like me and my family who fled the soviet union at that time okay um so you know most of our like i've been to israel lots of times because i have a lot of family there yeah um a lot of my family's within four miles of me here in queens mm. um and so i haven't been back and i, I want to i yeah. want to like go to the park that i played in when i was a kid even though i have no memories i mean who knows maybe like this weird memory will come back but yeah. i just want to i just want to see the kids playing there and say and just imagine that that was yeah. actually me at some point but i do feel like what you just said because I, I i don't feel like I, if i go to Bangladesh, i don't feel like i belong there mm-hmm. first i can't do anything because literally i'll have to have my cousins hold my hand to do <laughs> right. anything i can't cross the street I mean, I can't read Bangladesh as well, so I, they have to take me anywhere. Mm-hmm. And here, I, obviously, now there's a bit bigger Bangladeshi population, so now I see, I feel more at home or more like I'm part of a community. But when I when I was younger, I certainly didn't. And here, it's still, you know, even though we have a lot of Bangladeshi, it still doesn't feel like it's our country. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I feel the same way. It's like, where do we belong? Man, this is such a big topic. I mean, what does it mean to feel like we're in our country? 
Yeah. America is both everyone's country yeah. and no one's country, and it's such a hard. Yeah. It's such a hard distinction to make. Sometimes I walk around, and I'm, that's why you know I always thought to myself, if I ever had to j- join an army, and this is totally not a thought out thing, so don't take this too deeply, but like I would defend New York City before I defend this nation. And I and I don't and I mean that very lightly only because like I love New York. I mean I obviously yeah. love America and would you know protect this nation however I can. But I'm always like if New York was fighting like New Jersey, I don't know. <laughs> That's too close to home. Um, you know what I mean? Like I, I what I'm trying to say is that like I, I walk around New York City and I see all these kooky people and just all these languages and stuff, and I don't feel that doesn't connect me to like my culture per se. Um, but it makes me feel comfortable. That's I our guess. culture. Yeah, yeah, that's our culture. The yeah. fact that, uh, I'm mean, not to make it all about food, but the fact that I can get Greek food oh down the God, block, yeah. I can get you know Chinese food not too far, I can get Vietnamese food. Like, I, yeah, that's that's our culture, and the fact that we have exposure to so many people of different ethnicities and languages, that's our that's the New York culture. That's you know, what I love about New York. And I, and one thing I want to say about the Boney Instagram page. Um, is that I've learned a ton about? Oh yeah, yeah. Like I love all of your questions because I, you know, I just I, I literally yeah. read through all the stories. Some things I can't understand, yeah, obviously. Yeah, but if yeah. it's in English, especially if they're photos, because yeah. you're like, hey, how do you like to eat this particular food? <laughs> and then I'm like, because I mean, I live in Queens, so I'm like, let me, I like look up the restaurants and stuff like that. Have you ever, so, have you ever had Bangalore? So I haven't yet, but you I have know. a little. I know I have a. I have gotta, a list we should now. record it. That'd be fun. Yeah, that would actually be great. Yeah, but the stories. Uh, Noshin does the stories. Yeah, she has some really cool questions. If you have any, yeah, if you ever, have, yeah, we should definitely do Bengali food. Right? You so, would love it. And I, it's very I, different from Indian food. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, I had uh, talked to somebody about this today, actually, that a lot of the Indian food, Indian restaurants in Manhattan, a lot of them are owned by Bengalis, hmm. but it's Indian food because it's, because um, a lot of the Indian foods, uh, like the 80s and 90s, they were owned by Bengalis. They, they started because nobody would know about Bangladeshi food. Mm-hmm. If, somebody, if you put a sign Bangladeshi food, who would, you know, not mm-hmm. many people would know. So that's why they start Indian foods. And it's also a little bit more bland. So mm-hmm. if, you, if you have, like, actually, Bangladeshi, a little bit more spicier, a lot yeah. more fish, a little bit different spices. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you should definitely check it out. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's, yeah, there's too, there are too many kind of watered down ethnic oh, restaurants, yeah. which are a great introduction for many people. But when you're yeah. from Queens, you're like, yeah. I'm not going to go to a restaurant in Midtown. I'd rather go to the one where like the grandma's cooking in the back. Yeah, I, I, I get really mad because <laughs> there's this Inday, there's a new fast food Indian place in Manhattan, mm-hmm. all over Manhattan. It's called Inday, I-N-D-A-Y. Mm-hmm. It's like the most bland mm-hmm. Indian. It's like fast food, Indian fast food. It's so bland. But you know what? The lines are out the door. Yep. Well, listen, if it's an introduction... Yeah. To Indian food for people who've never had it. Yeah. That's a good thing. You yeah, need a, you need yeah, a gateway yeah. drug. Um, yeah, it's it's fine. Yeah, I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm glad and uh, but I just hope people yeah. realize yeah. that that's not where you're going to get in India. Same thing as Chinese food. Right. You know, the Chinese food that we're here, I, I, you know that I'm going to China. A lot of people have yeah. heard me talk about it. I'm not going to find any of this stuff here. Right. There's none of this stuff is in yeah. China. They have no They don't general have general so chicken. chicken. That's an American. <laughs> they don't. They know that's an what? American. No, I know, I know. That's yeah. The first of all, the fortune cookie is, <laughs> was discovered or created in California. Yeah, yeah. It's not a. It's not an Asian thing. So is sriracha sauce, you know. I didn't know that. Yeah, also California what? made. Is that really? Yeah. And that I didn't know. But I'm I mean, pretty... they do have like really spicy uh, sauces in mm-hmm. uh, in in uh, well chutney. Chutney is like an Indian thing, mm-hmm. and now chutney is like everywhere. You can get chutney on Whole Foods now, which is really interesting. Which, which like you said, it's, it is it is a good introduction. So I'm sure. Um, chutney, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to see that. So you talked about being a, uh, a refugee um, and being an immigrant. The other startup you have is yes. related to uh, 
uh, helping immigrants, right? Yes, basically. So I was in my, my quote-unquote real job, was an immigration lawyer before we worked together. Um, but then I, you know, not to bore everybody, but I worked in immigration law, working with corporates. So I wasn't, you know, helping families stay together or whatever. I think that's that's really difficult and really just rewarding work. I loved what I did, but our clients were ultimately, you know, corporations bringing in foreign talent, um, typically on H-1B visas, which probably most people have heard of at this point. Um, and then I saw some inefficiencies in the space and I was like, you know what, I kind of want to build a software that would help this industry. Um, so I did that, but at first I had to go and work in tech, which is how I came to DTCC, because uh, I had no idea what to do. I didn't know how to start a company. I'm a lawyer, you know, I'm a lawyer right? I, don't, I have an idea and I see companies out there because we were supporting tech companies, but I don't know how to get from here to there. So I took a couple of years off from the from the uh, legal space and worked in tech and you know consulted with some tech companies on the side. And it's cool because the improv worked, worked really nicely. Um, I was able to pitch myself as somebody who can teach improv at startups because I was consulting with startups on the side. So I was like, oh. I get you. It's not even that I just can do the improv thing. Like I get what your day-to-day life is at a startup, for wow. example. You wear different hats and you work at a co-working space and you need to be friends, you know, all this stuff. Um, so both of these businesses, even though they're super disparate in the sense that one is a software for like a legal technology and the other one is just theater for, you know, fun at work, um, they, they did overlap quite a bit. But yeah, so now I, my second business that I run right now is... Um, a, an immigration tech startup called Laborless, which is a pretty broad. You know, the idea is you work less, labor less, um, and we we automate H one B visa compliance. So yeah. we we work. So my clients are law firms and companies that hire people on H one B visas, and there's a compliance process that used to be, and still is overwhelming, overwhelmingly very manual. Just like printing paper and mm-hmm. spreadsheets, you know the stuff that, like, when you look at it, you're like, "This needs to, there needs to be a tool for this." Yeah. So that's kind of what we've done. It's interesting. Yeah, I had a uh, last episode TK Kaider. He's yeah. a Bengali uh, entrepreneur, and that's the thing that he said uh, has drive has has driven him in terms of identifying um, startup opportunities mm-hmm. is inefficiencies. Yeah. He's like he hates inefficiencies. And that's, you know, because I talked about, you know, I want to start something. And he's just mm-hmm. like, yeah, start from there. Identify some sort of inefficiency, even if it's the littlest thing. You know, he's an opportunity, um, you know, perfect opportunity if something, if something that requires, like, all these spreadsheets. And I love spreadsheets. You know, yeah. I love spreadsheets. Yeah. I teach Excel. But, you know, if you're, there's a limit to how much Excel can do. And certainly it requires automation. If it requires automation, there's an opportunity. And there. also Excel is amazingly powerful for certain things. But we use Excel for things that we don't have other options for. Um, you know, so that, to me, that's the issue. If you're, if you're using Excel to track a date, that's really not the right way to use Excel. Mm. Um, because there are probably other options out there. And then the other thing is... Don't be worried if something is too small. So, for example, a lot of people have told me, oh, your, your software is kind of niche, you know, because I work with not just immigration tech wholesale, but it's more about the specific compliance piece. Um, and I think it's because they didn't realize, right, that, like, sure, this is a niche 
process that I'm automating, but when you take that and multiply it times a million people that do this every day, all of a sudden it's a million people that are frustrated every single day because there's no software that solves this. Mm. Uh, you know, the reality is you have to start somewhere. My view viewpoint is if you have a specific problem, even if it seems small, solve that problem very, very well and then figure out where to, where to expand. Because if you start to boil the ocean, that's a term I learned in corporate world. No one's, you're not yeah. going to build anything really, really robust. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think I think TK's advice is spot on. If you have, uh, however small of an inefficiency it is, try to build something around it. The other thing is that I've been telling people, because people also ask me about, like, I have an idea. Especially a lot of lawyers come to me and they're like, how did you, how did you leave the practice of law? And, you know, I, I have an idea for a tech company, but I don't know where to start. Um, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about that. We could probably spend a whole episode talking about how to go from being a lawyer to being a legal tech or a tech startup founder. Um, but but my whole thing is start, just try. Worst case scenario, if you try to build something and it doesn't work, you're going to learn so much about the process of building something. Yeah. Right? You want the thing that doesn't work to be people don't want your product. Not that your product sucks. If you build a great product but nobody wants it, in some way, you might see it as a failure. In another way, that's an incredible learning opportunity, right? Um, if only one person uses it and there's no market for it, yeah, that sucks. You can't build a whole business around it. But you built something that has helped one person. That is all the satisfaction, and I think, that you need uh, to say, I know how to do this. And then you continue trying, and then you know, the, maybe the second or the third or the fifth idea is going to be something that you can execute on just as well, but this time it's going to be like, wow, huge market opportunity. What, do you, uh, what were your uh, parents, uh, your mom's uh, reaction when you uh, left uh, corp the corporate world? We talk, I say because yeah. we talked about it a lot in the, on the uh, podcast is uh, the Bengali parents um, tend to discourage their kids from starting their own companies, even though a lot of Bengali parents have come here, they've started businesses and very, very successful. Mm -hmm. It's something that they kind of um, discourage uh, their kids from doing yeah. and because they push them towards stability and working you know, for a corporation, things like that. What were your parents' reactions? So interesting, right? Because, yeah, you, they come in and, and, and they're basically entrepreneurs, regardless of what they do, whether they you know start an accounting firm or if they own a store. Um, it's business. It yeah. is, but, you know, I think immigrant parents want stability for their kids and they think to themselves to them there is no sexiness behind starting a business yeah. now very risky. entrepreneur is this cool you know yeah. word of the du jour if you will um, and everyone wants to do it and like the VC money has made everything really sexy and it's popular it's a huge bubble though too. yeah it's, a bit, it's, it's definitely a bubble but I think it's also great because it frees people from this shackle of having to work in corporate and the fact that the, this venture capital and investment model exists allows people to try to f create businesses and maybe fund themselves somehow rather than bootstrap like you know our parents generation they all bootstrapped yeah. there was no VC money especially for you know a little you know local business so I think it, it comes from a good place from the perspective of being an immigrant's child both my parents are you know software developers basically um, like all my family are engineers, whether they work as engineers here in the Ukraine, in Soviet Union, everyone's an engineer. Math was like, because you know, space race, right? The U.S. was was fighting essentially the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And and so if you weren't doing math, you know, in our parent generation, if you weren't doing math, you're a loser. That's really interesting. Yeah. Sputnik. Yes, wow. exactly. So, you know, like everyone wanted to be a chess player and everyone was like uber math and uber engineering. Now... 
now there's a resurgence, but then there was like a bubble after the whole space race was over. It wasn't cool to be in engineering anymore. So I came from that background, but to be fair, I became a lawyer. So for all of the kids who are, you know, all the listeners who are kids of immigrants, I mean, this isn't the best answer, but you know, if you get an accounting degree or an engineering degree or you become a lawyer or God forbid you become a doctor and I say God forbid because it's a really long oh, yeah. it's a really long road to take to then be like, I'm gonna quit. But oh, if yeah. you have that, you can always find it you can always pick yourself back up and find a quote unquote corporate job. So I thought that was a little bit easier because it was like, listen, I, I was working as a lawyer, I have this thing, I have this idea that I think is a good idea. Let me try it. But worst case scenario, I'll go back to being a lawyer. You know, it's not like Yeah. And, and again, whole separate conversation. Is college even worth it anymore? But, you know, to say if you're 18 years old and you're like, I want to start a business and you don't even have a college degree, um, I think that's a little bit harder to swallow, especially for immigrant parents because, you know, they had this concept of America as a place where they can not just prosper themselves but set up a good life for their parent, for their kids. And now their kid is opting for a quote-unquote hard life. And it's like, Why? Why are you doing this? We're here to make life easier for you. So, um, you know, I try to be mindful of that, but I'm always like, I'm a lawyer, and so need if need be, I can go back to work. Yeah. Well, one thing TK said uh, yesterday on the podcast was that, you know, this idea that you don't need college and there's all these millionaires making money without going to college, it's false because, like, there's really just, like, two really successful people that never went to college and dropped out made tons of money as Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg there's not too many people like that and also those people that did that if you think about it they met their co-founders in college mm-hmm. uh, or they just had a ton of money I think Bill Gates actually Bill Gates did meet uh, his co-founders uh, in college also and he had like a ton of money in mm-hmm. a trust fund you know in, in a trust fund so it's not like oh you can just uh, and also there was just both geniuses so it's not like oh you, you can anybody can just drop out of college and make a ton of money so, so I mean yes and no um, I, my view of college is, in, for some things, it's obviously required. If you want to be a nurse, you have to go to college. If you want to be a lawyer, I mean, arguably, but you, you right now you have to go to college, right? If you want to be any sort of technical person. Um, I think where you have people who do various liberal arts degrees, college becomes less of a sensible investment absolutely right so i think college is amazing i think being in an academic environment is amazing you know we're from new york city cuny for example is like the best thing ever it's so cheap a lot of city college so i wish that city colleges were were just better perhaps uh, because they're very affordable i i think on the flip side if you have somebody who has a lot of money already they have the maybe quote-unquote luxury of being able to pursue you know a degree in philosophy somewhere that's going to be 50 60 grand a year um, if they can do that, I think they should. It's an, I love college. I think it's a wonderful experience. That being said, I think the reason people right now are fighting back against college is because something like, for example, five or ten years ago, there was no such career path as social media manager, social media marketing manager, mm. right? Um, and I used to, I remember when I used to see that, I'd be like, people get paid to just sit on Twitter, right? Um, in the very beginning, but obviously it's so in- incredibly important because social media marketing and engagement on social media is huge for business. You do not need a college degree for that. Absolutely not, right? You can become really good at that without having a college degree. Um, the flip side is the, the the millionaires that, you know, people who become wealthy who didn't go to college a lot, you can do e-commerce, 
Um, you could just straight up be a middleman between a, a distributor and on Amazon, right, or an Etsy or something like that. Um, you can trade all sorts of things without really knowing what you're doing by using platforms that recommend trades for you, for example, yeah. right? So like all these people who do Bitcoin, they're not finance PhDs. Um, they're just simple principles that they've picked up by yeah. doing like a 12-week workshop or something like that. You don't need to know supply and demand in order to understand when to buy and sell, for example, yeah. some cryptocurrencies. I'm not saying this with a lot of information about those specific things, but seeing people do do this makes me realize that it's not that you shouldn't be educating yourself. Nobody, People who say don't go to college don't say stop reading and stop educating yourself. Yeah. What they're saying is don't pay an old, dusty institution $50,000 a year. Yeah. To tell, to have them tell you what to read. Yeah. Because the reality is the things they're telling you what to read are based on curricula that were like yeah. decades old. And yeah. today's world is just not like that. So I think depending on what you want to do, you you can be really successful and still be really bright without going to college. Um, but then other things, you, you need to go to college. And yeah. I want to know that you've sat in class and somebody's pounded you on like yeah. molecules yeah. before you become a nurse you know, or something like that. Yeah, it's, I, you know, it's, it's not an easy answer. It's not a yeah. black and white uh, answer. Like I read somewhere that MIT makes all of their courses available online for free. Mm-hmm. So, and I haven't verified that, but I, I, I actually, I, I'm pretty sure that's true. Yeah. So, it's, so it's not their curriculum. Uh, but I think at MIT, you can potentially, I mean, you can meet some amazing people, right. people that are also as serious as you or, or just also just people that have access and money. And sometimes you need that to get ahead. Right. So that's like the network. Yeah, piece. that's a network. Piece. But so here's the important. thing. Let me challenge you yeah. for a second. Yeah. You have people who do all sorts of things that are, let's say, non-technical. And then five years into their career, they say, I want to become a software developer because ding, ding, ding. There are hundreds of thousands of jobs out there, mm-hmm. right? You know. Um, that are not being filled, you know, the immigration conversation is part of that. We need to import talent because we literally, it's, it's a skills gap. Yeah. So, and that's why over the last handful of years, all these like 12 week courses, you know, your your boot camps and people come out of there and they get good freaking jobs. I mean, maybe your first job is going to be 50 grand a year, which is objectively not terrible in New York. It's not a lot, but for a 12 week course. Yeah. You know, people go to college for four years to become yeah. some low-level analyst at that kind of what. You can literally go for 12 weeks, learn JavaScript, HTML, CSS, and yeah. become a, a front-end web developer for some little dinky company for $45,000 a year. Yeah. And then a year later, you can command a six-figure salary because that's just how many jobs there are. Yeah. So think about from the perspective of like, I can do a 12-week boot camp, right? So I can learn those kind of skills. And then, yes, you can meet people at MIT. You can meet people at Harvard. You can also meet people on LinkedIn. Literally, all of the little pieces that you that used to be available only at a university are now available digitally. And if you use the power of the internet correctly, you can actually piece together what would traditionally be a university experience Absolutely. for far less money Absolutely. and way quicker. Absolutely, I agree with you. And I don't, I don't know if I told you, but I'm doing a boot camp in mm-hmm. China, so I'm really excited about that. So one thing I did when research is that I, I just on LinkedIn looked up the bootcamp that I'm doing, and a lot of these people that have really good jobs never went to yep. college. Yep. So I absolutely agree with that. And I, I I've gotten into uh, debates uh, with people that are really politically active about the whole college mm-hmm. debt crisis mm-hmm. also. And I don't know how you're for. And this is just my thoughts. And <laughs> not doing any research is is I just you know the concept of someone being significantly in debt because of college, I think that 
like we you talked about earlier, if you are, if you are, if you majored in a, in a subject, that if you are majoring in a subject and you're spending, you know, upwards of sixty seventy thousand dollars a year mm-hmm. for that subject, then it should be a subject that'll get you paid, yeah. right? But if you're spending that kind of money on, and no knock against anthropology ma- uh, majors, because I loved anthropology, I was mm-hmm. an anthropology minor, mm-hmm. but if you're spending $60,000, $70,000 on an anthropology major a year, that's just not a smart investment. Right. And I es- don't... Especially if, for your audience, and this is my conversation as well, if you're coming from a place of either you're in the middle class, like yeah. right, yeah. or just straight up in, from an immigrant household, even yeah. if your family is wealthy... But you're just going to get into a lot of fights, why, yeah, right? Why like that? it's like why why are you going to do that? Why you do that? And or if you want to major in anthropology, which is great, uh, and I honestly like wish I could major yeah, in right? anthropology, right? It would have been amazing. But why go to a sixty thousand dollars school to do that? You could easily go to a city school and major in anthropology yeah. that has that, and you won't be in in debt. Um, so that's my that's my feeling. And also there's there's I feel like there is free college. Yeah, You're, like there's grants and there's Pell grants and TAP grants. So for people that can't afford it, there's uh, there is free college, and I feel like I feel like if you make college free, I feel like first of all, uh, there's a lot of research around like when you, th- that'll actually th- increase the cost, and the colleges will just charge the government more because right. that's what's actually caused prices of colleges to go up is because they've increased some of these Pell and Tap grants. Hmm. I mean, I it's so it's it's a it's a very long uh, conversation to have about this, but yeah, I, I feel like the student debt crisis it, it gets. I mean, um, there's two sides to it, but that's, yeah, that's that's just my opinion. Yeah, and we're seeing the effect of it, too. I mean, people in our generation are buying houses later. They're getting married later. Yeah. They're, like, they don't own a lot of assets in general. Forget yeah. about a house, even an apartment yeah. or a car. Yeah. Um, and that's because you're spending all of your money paying back a relatively high interest rate loan for an education. So, there's, I'm not, yeah, I definitely think yeah. there's, there's predatory loans and oh, predatory yeah. banks. I'm not denying that. I mean, yeah. some of the, uh, the... The interest on these loans, I mean, absolutely. And some of these banks that are, you know, intentionally um, going after students that they know can't pay them back. I mean, that's horrible. And also the fact that you have to, the fact that the bankruptcy laws where mm-hmm. every type of debt will get wiped out except student loans. Yeah. I don't know who. Also, think I think also uh, family responsible. So if you have um, child support, that, that passes through bankruptcy too. Really? I remember that from my bankruptcy, bankruptcy class. That's a good thing. You don't want to, you know... If you're supporting a child, you don't want to lose that support. You know, you don't yeah, want yeah. that. But yeah, anyway, I yeah, like I yeah, this is a, a long conversation and a, and a challenging one. I think ultimately, I I feel that college can and should not be more as expensive as it is. Um, and I think we have to start approaching it from a, an financially financial prudence point of view, right? Yeah. So, like, what's the in high school, you should have an ROI calculator on. A college education, depending on what kind of school you go to, whether it's a subsidized school or a private school, what kind of degree you want and what the average salary yeah. coming out of that school is, yeah. um, and then sort of figure out, like, does this make sense? Yeah, it doesn't have to be about money. It's about what, what makes you happy. And obviously, I'm realizing that 20 years out of college, but yeah, I mean, that's so much more important than how much money you make. Because, yeah. you know, I do well, but I'm definitely not happy, and that's why I'm trying to make a change. <laughs> right. Right, and that's why you. I'm, I'm thinking that's why you made the change also because yeah. corporate America just wasn't. And you talked about the other day, uh, and I, and you said that it was. I think it was a Sunday, and you said that like you're just looking forward to the week. Oh my gosh! And that's, yeah. You can't put a price on that. Can I tell you something? I was walking here, 
And, you know, I left my house to get here at like 5.45 p.m. or something, around 6 p.m. And I saw somebody coming in. It's time for people coming home time. And I saw this, this young woman walking. And, yes, it's dark because it's winter. But she had this, her face was, she had this big yawn. She yawned like a, a lion, right? Like you could tell she's just just visceral tiredness coming off of her. And I'm out here. And I've been up since 5.45, I think. Because I drove my girlfriend to work. She's a nurse. She starts at 7 a.m. So I've been up since then. I did all this stuff. I went to the gym. I've been eating and cooking, cleaning, and working all day. And then I left my house at 6 o'clock with a pep in my step coming over here to talk with you. And this this woman who I presume, I mean, she seemed pretty young. And I mean, listen, I can't I know nothing about her. Maybe she's, I don't know what's going on. But my mind immediately went to, you know, when I was coming home from work after a corporate job at like 5.30 p.m. Now, to me, that's like I have all night to work. But but then five thirty, you just you're so drained. You're so, I would pass out on the train immediately. Um, and, and I just think to myself, like, man, it's not about how much time I was spending at my corporate job because I work way more hours now. You know, running a startup and having multiple businesses, and I freelance on the side. I'm constantly working seven days a week, but I'm always so energetic because I just I enjoy what I do. I mean, it's such a clear. It, there's no way to just you can say that over and over again until the person just quits their corporate job that's sucking their soul and even just tries to be to do something on their own it's really hard to convey like the real day-to-day feeling of happiness you have when you are your own boss you create your own hours the money that you make i know you said it's not about money but there's i've made over the last two years so much less money than i've ever made in my life but i'm and fair enough i'm not going out to eat as much and i'm not traveling as much Right, so those two things I really miss. I miss snowboarding. Snowboarding's kind of lift tickets like 150 bucks now, so mm-hmm. I can't really afford that anymore. I'll do it later. Um, so I do miss those things, but day to day, I control my life. I control my time. And I was thinking about this. I thought about how much money I made, and I was like, I, I don't know if this is going to sound right, but like I made that money. Like I created that wealth mm-hmm. for myself. Whereas when you work at a company, the amount of money that you get paid. It should be correlated to the value you create, but it's just based on what the company is giving you. And it's and then you kind of like normalize it by looking at the market and you the presumption is that if a hundred companies in this industry, in this city, pay someone in your position hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, that means you're worth hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. But you don't really know what you're worth. You don't know the value you're bringing to yeah. to a company. How do you figure that out? You go off on your own. You ask people to pay you something, and then you see what they're willing to pay you. You might find out that you can do $150,000 worth of work in two months. Like, I don't know. I'm just making, you know, I'm, I'm kind of making those numbers up because you might come out and say, hey, I'm starting my own practice and I'm doing, like, for example, you're in compliance. So let's say, or you were. Um, you are. You're a compliance, you know, professional. So let's say you come out in some way, way shape, or form and say, I have this compliance uh, consulting consultancy now. And I'm going to do for you services X, Y, and Z. Um, you don't know if someone's going to be like, yeah, sure. Here's here's 150 grand for this like two month project. You know, mm-hmm. you'll never know unless you try. And you might realize, wow, I've been severely underpaid because I've been providing a value that's worth my to my company a million dollars, but they've been paying me buck fifty. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah. so like going through the journey of figuring that out is so. Um, it's so fascinating. It's so different. Yeah, from getting a paycheck. I've loved that. 
I've loved yeah. that. Well, I'll tell you right now. I I was looking forward to this podcast more than anything the whole day as I was at work. I mean, because it's just yeah, it does drain you. And I that woman that you describe is definitely. I feel like it has been me uh, for a long time now. But you've learned so much. So the the flip side is, and what's really great about learning, you know, it, it's kind of like boot camp, or it's kind of like um, you know, basic training. The flip side of it is you go work at a startup. So everyone wants to work at a startup, right? Everyone's cool. Everyone's nice. You work in a fun office or a co-working space. The reality is if everyone who works at a startup has only worked at a startup, they've never been in a place that has structure mm. and that has um, best practices. Yeah. Even as something as stupid as like folder naming conventions. Mm. Ha- to have worked in a place that has required you to name things, name files and folders a certain way is going to be a lifesaver because when you start a company and you create your Google Drive, for example, if you look at my Google Drive for my startup, it's actually from day one, it's been pretty pretty clean. I mean, there's probably some stuff I could do that's better. But for the most part, I have different folders and on subfolders and I name things the right way just because I've worked in a place that has had so many freaking files that you have to do that, right? And usually the, the, the team is like, name the, right? So just having that experience has saved me from headaches of like, where did I put this? I need the, the spreadsheet now or whatever. So that's really valuable. You can't have that if you just start yeah. off with your own, right? It yeah. takes a long time to get to that. Yeah. You usually have to go through uh, an experience of like, I can't find this thing and a client needs it right now. And then you're like, crap, I need to take a weekend to like clean up my, my files. Yeah. If you come from corporate and you start your own company after that, you start off with that mindset. So there are a lot of benefits. Uh, but I've also realized that there's so much time wasted on just human emotions that are unnecessary, you know, the challenges of and the friction caused by different types of personalities at work. Um, you spend your time throughout the day navigating, like, what am I going to say to this person? How am I going to present this idea in a way that's palatable? Yeah. Um, what does this person want? They, they, you know, your manager or your manager's manager asks you for something and they're not clear, but because you're a junior level analyst, you don't feel that you have the, the right to be like, I, I don't understand. Can you please, can we take... So like when I was at DTCC, I had a manager who was pretty opaque and I've literally, I've, I've, I had asked him multiple times. I'm like, we need to go into a room. And, and I only had this confidence because I already worked as a lawyer and I was like, not having this. Right. But if I was 22 years old coming out of college, there's no way that I would go to my manager, even though I'm not stupid. And I know that when they're asking me to do something and I don't get it, it's because they're unclear. Right. But I don't feel that I have the right to ask. And so I spend so much time I'm not sure. What do I do? And then you go around and you ask your other, you know, analyst that's worked with this manager and be like, do you know what they mean by this? Like you spend all this time on that where you, what you really should have done is been like, Hey manager, yeah. do you mind clarifying? Can we spend an hour of your day just sitting down so that you can explain to me in a way that I understand, not in a way that you think I understand in a way that I understand what I have to do. Stuff like that is what drains people, I think, in a corporate yeah. job. Yeah. And it's just like that emotional draining. And then you come back home and you're like, wow, I did like three hours of actual work. Yeah, that's exactly brain. what I was saying. It's interesting that you say that because I've had a conversation with someone today at work uh, that about I, – I started reporting to somebody new. And every, this, guy, this person has a really bad reputation that he's really mean and direct. But I love – I actually love it working for mm. him because there's no – questioning him and I'm in my mind what he means and sometimes he's super direct and he'll tell you to he'll tell you like you know you're doing something wrong but I love that like that I that the amount of energy you spend in trying to figure something someone else out and what they mean 
Um, and I don't, you know, and I'm, I'm older, but maybe it's different if I was, if I was younger, but I'm at a point where I don't need you to be super nice to me yeah. just to sugarcoat things and say things so that you're not hurting my feelings. I'd rather you be direct. And, but yeah, you're right. You spend, we spend so much time trying to figure out what someone means, trying to interpret what they're saying. Because you don't have time for it. Ain't nobody got time for that. Your manager, your new manager doesn't have time for it. Yeah. And you don't have time for it. And you know what? Once you realize that as the, as the direct report, and then once your manager realizes that you realize that, that, you know, that manager who other people think is meaner and direct is going to be your best friend at yeah. work, your mentor. Because they're going to be like, this guy's a straight shooter. When I tell him what to do, he's going to listen to me. When I think it's bad, I'm going to tell him and he's going to appreciate that and not take it personally and then that becomes a really productive work relationship to go back to the improv thing part of what I like to do with improv is to get people to feel comfortable telling one another especially if it's a you know an upward relationship so somebody who's talking to to a manager of theirs to feel comfortable to say like I don't understand this can you please clarify or I disagree or here's something else that I want to offer and put out you know to put out there because I think again to your point if you're lucky to find somebody who's come to that conclusion on their own through their 20 years of experience, and then you've had that conclusion on your own, and now you finally meet up in a corporate environment, and you're yeah. like, oh, great, someone who's direct. Yeah. But why should you have to work for 20 years to do that? You should just be learning that early on. And frankly, I found improv to be a really, really great way to sort of lubricate that conversation. Yeah. Um, so, cool. yeah. So you finished the tea? I'm almost done. Oh, wow, cool. I'm not, I don't want to chug it. Ah, it's cool. So... <laughs> Roman, how do people find out about your two startups and sure. what else do you have going on that you want people to know about? Oh my gosh. Um, well, I, I'll say that, first of all, the way to find out about my um, improv startup is on Instagram, at yeah. improv for and startups. And we'll post it on the Instagram post as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I appreciate that. Um, so it's at improv for startups. It's one word. Um, obviously, I don't just work with startups, but I found startups to be the most um, open to doing improv because... A lot of the corporates and law firms are like, no, this is weird. And I'm like, but you're a lawyer. You go and, you know, think on your feet and talk to juries all the time. But, mm. you know, I, I think they haven't clicked. The improv being relevant hasn't clicked to them. But um, at Improv for Startups. But more importantly, I'm super active on LinkedIn, as you know. Mm -hmm. And thank you for your support on LinkedIn. Um, so, And your name on LinkedIn is? Yeah, so you all can find me on LinkedIn at my name is Roman, R-O-M-A-N, Zelichenko. Z-E-L-I-C-H-E-N-K-O. And uh, I, I love connecting with people. Uh, because I work for myself, I do take all of my LinkedIn um, connections seriously. So, like, I chat with people. I don't just thumbs up, you know. Like, I'll, I really talk to people on LinkedIn. So, I find, I, I find that to be the best way to, to connect. That's cool. Thanks for uh, being on. Um, we'll get Bengali food next time. Oh, man, please. I'm so excited for that. Thank you for having me. I appreciate right. it. Bye, everyone. Gotta be honest With diamonds and pearls Yeah, yeah Bengali's in New York All over the world uh, It's the bony show uh, hey. Can you handle this? Representing the boroughs where the bangles live From the slang we spit To the gangs we with It doesn't matter We the essence of the Bangladesh I say, hey, come on Can you handle this? Representing the boroughs where the bangles live From the slang we